You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. In this episode, we speak to Matthew Goggin, the head honcho at the Seven Mile Beach Golf Development in Hobart, Tasmania. We explore Matt's early influences in the game, his grandfather, his mother Lindy, and hitting three irons off the sand at Seven Mile Beach itself. The influence that Mike Clayton had in the whole process, and the journey that Matt has been on over the last 10 to 15 years in terms of turning a dream into reality. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Matthew Goggin, you join us from Charlotte. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Down here in, uh, I think you're getting a little worse weather in your part of the country, in the part of the world than I am, but um, I've seen some pictures of St. Andrews with snow covered uh, fairways and stuff. So it looks like your winter's a bit rougher than mine. Thankfully, we're a little bit further south. Port Marnock and Kerry oh, Dolan nice. is, is a good deal. It's further south, yeah. So uh, it's five degrees out, gusting about 40k an hour. Perfect. Uh, wind chill, probably. So it's feeling, about, feeling a bit like two. So maybe a little <laughs> bit closer to the Tassie winters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we, we don't even get that cold. We're, 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 uh, we're, but Tassie weather is very misrepresented by the mainland in Australia. It, it's amazing. I, I was down there probably January 2020 and uh, my mate I mentioned this in the last podcast so apologies for those that heard it already uh, my mate had been 43 years since he'd actually darkened the door at Tasmania and had never got to Barnboogle so uh, we rectified that and he assured me that he would be back down in the not too distant future unfortunately COVID got in the way but yeah it is amazing how few people actually in Tassie who are golfers who actually make the trip up there, especially from Hobart. They feel like that three and a half hour drive is just too much of an incumbence to go up there and enjoy that place. But uh, I'll tell you what, if it was there when I was growing up, I would have been there all the time. It's a- it really is. Yeah. It really is. Um, I guess maybe we get into the first question, Matt, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, for, for those listeners that may not know who you are, perhaps you might give us a quick intro to Matt Goggin, professional golfer, course developer, mentor, and dare I say it, budding writer. I don't know about the budding writer or mentor part of it. Um, yeah, I grew up in Tasmania, Australia. Uh, not too many uh, professional golfers came out of there. Um, actually, probably I was one of the first. I know um, Stuart Jin Senior was living down there, but he was he was out of Queensland. But uh, not too many people to follow. And I was I was lucky enough to be selected in the AIS back in the days, the Australian Institute of Support um, of Sport, when that was getting started. And uh, that probably just turned everything around for me because really, growing up in a place like Tassie, it wasn't like there was you know, tons of great coaching or, or great opportunities. Um, we had a really strong sort of system around if you were good enough, you would get into, you know, national events and they'd get you to travel around and you'd get exposed to all that. But really, uh, from junior golf onwards, it was a bit tricky. So I was lucky to come from like a very strong golfing family. Obviously, my mother was a fantastic player, one of the best amateurs in the world for a long time. And my grandfather was a very keen golfer, so I was exposed to it pretty early, but never really took to it. Played a lot of other sports. Um, it, was, it was actually during a tennis tournament when I was probably you know, 13 or 14. A few of my mates wanted to go and play golf, so we went down to Royal Hobart, and then all of a sudden um, I hit a few good shots as opposed to struggling with your... You know, junior clubs when back in the in the eighties were not exactly designed for kids. It was generally like a cut down set of your grandfather's, and they're always too heavy and really stiff, and you you know you couldn't hit the ball, and it was hopeless. But when you're a bit stronger, thirteen, fourteen, and you and you got to um, 
got the feel of what a real golf shot felt like. You know, I've, I slowly stopped playing the other sports and golf took over. And then I was lucky enough to catch the eye of Ross Herbert, who was the, um, the head coach at the Australian Institute of Sport. And that's when everything changed because I moved to Melbourne and spent two years just full-time golf. Um, it was an incredible program. It was live-in, playing courses on the sand belt, having, you know, sports psychology, training, um, physiology, training physio you named it it was there at your disposal if you wanted to so you know for a kid coming from Tassie with no coaching to to fully immerse myself in that kind of changed my changed my life and put me on the track to actually realizing that you know I could make a a go of a profession as a professional and then uh, after two years in the AIS I was you know sort of one of the top amateurs in Australia and, and won the Aussie amateur and played well in some tournaments in the US and you know Back when Tiger Woods was an amateur, um, came through with him, really. He was just a little bit younger than me, but turned pro around the same time. But it was, you know, it was all due to the AIS. And then a year out um, of the AIS, I had that Australian amateur win, which gave me an exemption to turn pro, basically. You could get exempt through the Australian Q School. And I was, I'd spent a year working uh, for my dad, who was a horse trainer, and uh, mucking out stables in the morning and then practicing in the afternoon. You can imagine... How much I enjoyed mucking out stables at five o'clock in the morning, but particularly because I was pretty much terrified of horses. Um, my dad was sort of the top horse trainer in Tasmania for a long time, but you couldn't catch me on a horse or really near one. Uh, they always scared the crap out of me. But um, So I was playing in a, a professional tournament um, as an amateur. Uh, it was the Greg Norman Classic, I believe, and I was the leading amateur, and I think I would have finished in, say, the top 15 or so and would have got a paycheck of... I don't know, ten, twelve thousand dollars at the time, which was a lot of money. And uh, I kind of called up Dad and said, uh, "I don't think I'm going to be mucking out stables anymore. <laughs> I'm going to go and turn pro." So I turned pro and um, and you know set off through the world of professional golf, and that sort of took me for all over the world in amazing experiences for the next sort of two decades, really. Brilliant. Uh, and obviously, you're you're currently based in Charlotte, North Carolina. How does Charlotte compare to the home conference of the Dermot River, the Melbourne Cup, and of course the AFI Grand Final? Uh, yeah, obviously really different. Uh, I, I'd, it was kind of by accident I ended up in Charlotte. Um, you know, I did the traditional, like the traditional route for um, Aussies were you played in Europe because Greg Norman played in Europe for a couple of years and then you go to the US. So you always did, you never went straight to America. I think Stuart Appleby was probably the first player to go straight to America and, and, and not play, go through the European tour route. And then everyone went to Florida. So I went to Florida, uh, lived in Orlando. Uh, Greg Chalmers and I, uh, we had a place down in Orlando in the same area where everyone else was. We weren't inside the gates of Isleworth. We were just outside them. But there was Craig Parry and Stuart Appleby and Robert Allenby and um, who else was there? Bradley Hughes, um, Frank Nobolo, like all, all the Aussie Aust- or, you know, and New Zealand players were in that area. But after a year of living there, I think Greg and I just looked at it and like, what? Why do people want to live in Orlando? This is horrific. Um, uh, not a great airport. There was, you know, it was just tour- full of tourists and it was so hot and oppressive and humid and not what we were used to and it wasn't as easy to travel out of. And what we learned was that most of the most of the guys were living down on the coast, which was actually pretty nice. But So then I had a look around and decided to uh, to move to Scottsdale. And I was in Scottsdale there for a long time. And then after having a young family, traveling a lot with, you know, two kids under two and all those time changes and the, 
and the extra hours on the plane, I wanted to head back east because the tour was more southeast centric, always has been outside of the West Coast swing. You pretty much play all your events from from Texas and to the east. So, you know, Charlotte was had a great tournament, uh, the Wells Fargo. It used to be the Wachovia back then, and we really enjoyed the, the city. And I had a friend of mine who was driving a NASCAR from Tassie as well. I sort of emailed him a few times about Charlotte, and he said I'd love it, and that's how we ended up here. It was, you know, no, nothing really planned, just kind of happened. Of course, uh, again, I hope my my geography of America is right here. Maybe getting North Carolina mixed up with South Carolina, but of course, you, you you've got some great courses around you there in in uh, in Charlotte. I believe Kia was not too far away, and Tobacco Road and places like that. Yeah, like uh, Pinehurst is obviously not far. It's probably a couple of hours um, east of Charlotte. Um, Kia was probably only, I don't know, three and a half hours away down on the coast. And you've got Hilton Head. Um, of course, every course is a Donald Ross course. I mean, he was so, uh, he, he did hundreds, sounds like thousands if you listen to the actual people here. Like every, every course is like, well, this is a Donald Ross course. This is an old Donald Ross course. I don't think he actually did as many as what, uh, as what uh, people claim or the, cl- or the club members like to claim. So uh, I play at a course here, which is actually a really nice little Donald Ross course, um, Carolina Golf Club. Um, there's Charlotte Country Club as well, which is another Ross course here. So there's a lot of good golf, a lot of good golf. Bring you back to where it all started. Young Matthew Goggin is playing golf at Royal Hobart. You might tell us how the Oasis takeaway shop fits, fits into the story of Seven Mile Beach. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> typical sort of junior members right you always felt like all you're getting hauled up in front of the committee you know if it wasn't once a month it was it felt like it because you know you're doing stupid things as kids probably but like but there's other little things like oh pulling your don't you know your socks are there like you play off we used to have the you know the long socks with the shorts you know i mean i don't whether you had that rule in the uk but it's just like you always had to pull your socks up so we'd always, you know, walk down the first with our socks off, get to the second, push our socks down, get to the ninth, pull our socks back up because that's only where the secretary manager could look out his window and see you. So we always, um, you know, felt like, well, we're not going to go upstairs and have to deal with taking our shoes off and taking our hats off and doing all the, you know, the, the good etiquette things that you don't want to do when you're a 15-year-old kid, 16-year-old. So we used to go uh, just drive around the corner to... Um, this, this really random takeaway shop and it'll be even more random when people actually go to Seven Mile Beach and realise where it is in relation to Royal Hobart. It's on the other side of the airport and it's just this house and it's just on its own. There's nothing next to it. There's nothing around it and it was a it was a takeaway store um, but they did an awesome hamburger and it was way better than the ham and cheese sandwiches upstairs at the uh, Royal Hobart Golf Club. So we used to um, duck around there for lunch and after lunch, you'd sort of set out for a little bit of a stroll and it's right up against the, the start of the dunes really at Seven Mile Beach and we always kind of had that conversation amongst ourselves, you know, of like, well, why isn't Royal Hobart down here? Like Royal Hobart's so flat, so boring, you know, it'd be so much fun to have a golf course in here. Um, not actually knowing just how crazy and large the dunes do get the further west you get along Seven Mile Beach. But yeah, I mean, that's where it all sort of all started. But um, a lot of it was, you know, going down there as a kid too. Um, you know, we used to hit balls along the beach. We'd go and play in the dunes. Um, we used to do orienteering in the dunes. We'd have school trips down there where you'd have sort of sports afternoons and like capture the flag and all these sort of crazy things down there. And at the time, you didn't register as golf at all. But um, when, um, you know, I got serious about 
the possibility or really it was more the reason why hadn't someone built a golf course at seven mile beach it wasn't really that i was looking for land or had this idea of being a, a golf course developer at all it was more that i wonder why it never got built so then you know you sort of reverse engineer it and try and find out all the reasons why it didn't happen and it turned out there weren't really any good ones sort of struck doing a bit of research uh for the interview uh and your blog pieces and obviously you speak lovingly about your grandfather gordon jennings who i know has been a big influence on you and ultimately gordon's admiration of the great severiano ballesteros um, it strikes me as as not only did gordon have a, an influence but obviously true gordon uh sevi had a, had a huge influence as well can you tell us what you remember about uh, perfecting long irons off the sand at seven mile beach yeah, I mean, it was just fun, right? It's it has this. Um, there's nothing better than hitting the ball along the beach, and it, and it's it's unique in that Seven Mile Beach. There's never anyone there. Like it's very underutilized. Like the beach, you know, it's ten kilometers long. There's a sort of a day use area at the very beginning. There's a little township that has a little area with an access point at the far east end. But once you get going, I mean, there's a lot of beach and a lot of runway just to hit balls and just to keep going and going. And my my grandfather, I mean, this is when I was a kid. I didn't know anything really about Seve Ballesteros at the time, but he would always go down there and we hit balls along the beach. And um, yeah, I mean, there's nothing better than hitting balls on tight sand just after the water's washed off it, like give it like a minute or so after a wave's gone up and then it, it just, you know, it's... It's just a perfect lie to perfect your long iron play. I mean, it wasn't really about bunker play, to be honest. We used to just smash five irons and three irons and stuff like that and just walk down the beach and chase it and hit another one because there's, there's nothing, unless you hit one in the water, there was nothing stopping you from just keep going on forever and going for a walk. So it was a lot of fun. Picking up on Savvy again, did you, uh, you probably have a vintage that might have had a chance to play with him. I, I don't think I actually played with him. Um, he was playing... Um, he was playing the European tour when I was out there. Uh, I do remember one afternoon being at one of those horrific Marriott golf courses where they used to play all the English tournaments. I don't know, Forest of Arden or, you know, wherever it was. It was late in the season and I was on the chipping green by myself and it was late in the day and then uh, Olathebal comes over and then Seve comes over and they spend the next hour or so, or Seve does, spend, spends the next hour or so giving... Um, Alathabal a chipping lesson and it's just those two and me because it's like it's getting dark and of course I'm just standing there just kind of listening and you know obviously I can't understand them speaking in Spanish but it was just it was pretty amazing to think because like at the time um, I mean Jose was probably Masters champion he must have been by then he'd already won the Masters already won a major was already one of the best players in Europe yet um, his admiration and just his you know, listening to Seve and, and just the, the way like he interacted with him was of just of awe of everything. And like, and here's a guy who's probably was probably the best chipper on tour anyway, getting a lesson off Seve. So it was pretty crazy. Again, delving into your, uh, your writing as preparation for this. Uh, I think all of us or many of us, I suppose is probably a better way of putting it. Our grandfathers generally have an influence in terms of introducing us to the game. And that really resonates with me. And I'm sure many of our listeners as well would be nodding their heads. Like many, many of us just started an early, an early age. And as you said, maybe drifted away for a time um, into tennis and other pursuits. But you did double down and got bitten hard by the golf book. 
you overcome or overcame, should I say, the dreaded Australian concept of tall poppy syndrome to become a gun golfer who would hold playing rights about the European Tour, as you said, and the PGA Tour. What can you tell us about how Matt Goggin got hooked in the game and, and how your competitive walkabout has ultimately led you, where, led you to where you are now? Yeah, it's it was a weird... I guess it was a weird journey because I played so many other sports and, and like had ambitions in other sports. And then it was really through a few injuries. Like I was playing football, I was playing cricket, um, I played a lot of field hockey. I mean, I pretty much played everything, basketball, water polo, tennis, you name it. There wasn't a sport that if, if there were sports, pra- I'd much be do it sooner doing sports practice than anything to do with school. Like as far as I'm concerned, school was a vehicle to go and play sport. It wasn't, the, you know, that, that's, that's what I enjoyed doing. So when um, I had a couple, I was playing a bit of golf, I was getting a little bit better. I, I kind of became obsessed with golf tech, golf technique and, and Faldo and just became this massive Nick Faldo fan, which is kind of weird coming from Australia because obviously um, Norman was just everyone's hero growing up and he was mine. But there was just something about the way Faldo went about the game, his technical prowess, um, at the time, he was playing so well in majors that I just became a little bit enamored with him. And then as, as I started to get a little bit better at golf and started to be you know, one of the better players in the state and making the junior teams and all those sorts of things, um, I, I got a few injuries playing uh, football, actually, funnily enough, which was a terrible sport to play, AFL, <laughs> when you're a kid. My, uh, my uncle was a Hall of Fame Aussie Rules football player. My dad played. And I, I think my dad, the happiest day of... Um, my dad's sporting life for me was the day I decided not to play football anymore because he just he just saw his his brother come home with his nose halfway across his face and you know probably a mild concussion and and he experienced the same that he didn't want me to play at all so golf sort of took over and uh and man when it did it just you know I think everyone can relate to when you become obsessed with something um and you know I remember my uh my grandparents who went to the British Open, I believe, at St Andrews in 1990. Um, it might have been when Ernie, I think they came back to talking about Ernie Els and how much they loved Ernie Els. I reckon Ernie Els was an amateur. They'd seen this kid, and um, they on their trip they'd brought back a, a video camera, and this was like you know no one had seen like I you know no one had video cameras back then, and I remember. Um, using the video camera and when you had the uh when you pause you'd have to guess when you paused it and you'd look through the little viewfinder and it would shake violently and you couldn't make out anything but i would um i would take a video of my swing i would take a and then take video i had nick faldo's uh might have been golf my way his um his instructional video with ledbetter that was at valderrama which is one of the all-time best by the way the the faldo swing in that is so pure and he's got these, you know, amazing green pants on and, and white shirt. His, his dress sense with Pringle was something else. But um, I'd put, um, I'd, I'd pause that and then I had another little TV where I'd hook up the, the video camera and take my video and then pause that and then I'd try and line them up and then try and, try and get into the same positions at Nick Faldo knowing nothing about golf instruction, really absolutely nothing. Um, Mate, that mate, that sounds that sounds really really confusing. <laughs> yeah. Especially when he's six foot four and I'm like six foot, completely different build, completely different. And I played way too much field hockey to get my arms into any sort of high positions that that, that he had. But yeah, I was just obsessed with the technique. And then, 
you know, my grandfather was a huge influence because he um, he took me down and got me in front of Peter Toogood. Now, Peter Toogood was a legendary Tasmanian amateur and he would come out and watch me hit balls or he would we played a lot of golf and he had an amazing way of teaching like he was a really great teacher he was a school teacher himself but he just had a really interesting way of getting away from technique and into just playing and hitting shots so there was a you know to give you an example there was, there was times when I would struggle um, you know slicing the ball or whatever it was and he would out on the course he would put the ball um, behind a tree with a with a limb kind of a low limb and then you'd just be kind of behind to the left of the tree and he would say to me he'd stand and hit this ball and say okay now hit it up over the limb and out and around the tree you know what I mean free your arms and I'd stand there and you'd hit a shot and being behind the tree and with the low limb and trying to hit it as high as possible up out around the tree would force you into that position that you were trying to get into of being, you know, whether it was more inside or, or, or more down the line with your release or whatever it was. So he was, you know, a, an excellent teacher. So I think having um, having someone like that, such a good golfer around the club, my grandfather was obsessed with, with golf and with he knew a lot of good golfers, he knew a lot of the pros. Obviously, his daughter was an amazing player. He was more, you know, into the technique than my mum. My mum was just an incredible player. Um, to give you an example, when I, when I was a junior and you know struggling with hooking the ball a lot, you know, getting the real duck hooks, I was on the range one day and everything was just going left, 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 and I'm getting really exasperated. Um, and I'm and mum's there watching me hit balls, and I just turn around to mum and I'm just like, mum, like. What do I do? I mean, what do I? Go? I mean, I'm trying. I'm trying this. I just, I just, I'm just hooking it every time. She said, "What would you do?" And she's like, "Well, I'd just stop hooking it." And like, and that's how she thought, right? She's just like, "Well, just stop hooking it. If you're going to cut it, just stop cutting it." Like she was such a natural player, and so good that she never got into the technique of things. She would just be like, "Well, you just, if you're hooking the ball, hit a few fades. That'll get rid of it." And uh, of course, me, you know, anything your mum says or your parents says is the worst thing in the world. So I was just like, oh, that's, you know, how unhelpful can you be, mum? But uh, yeah, so, you know, that, that was sort of my journey into getting obsessed with golf. And then I was lucky enough to, I think, you know, you talk about the tall poppy syndrome and growing up in, in Australia. It was, it was particularly worse growing up in a place like Tasmania, which is very small. It's almost like, Anyone, if if you're good at anything, or if you said you're good at anything, you know you were, you know, you had tickets on yourself. You're a big head. You're arrogant. You know, and there was nothing worse as a kid, you know, being singled out really. Or for me, anyway, I always felt like you're always trying not to put yourself in that situation where, you know, people are saying, "Look at him. He thinks he's better than everybody else." Um, so you kind of had this inbuilt, you know way of sort of holding yourself down or criticize i was very critical of myself and a real perfectionist and had a a bit of a temper and i think it was more built around not wanting to show out and just to show everyone that i don't think i'm good by like basically abusing myself (laughs) you know know, and that if i was going to do you know psychology 101 so it was really interesting getting you know as having people believe in you because you didn't really trust it um, you're always a bit surprised. So when uh, so when you got picked for the junior team, I remember thinking at the time, well, I don't know whether I deserve this. Am I really good enough? And so you're always fighting a bit of that. And it wasn't until I was away on a um, a trip with you know the 
Tassie Golf Association. It was sort of like a, I think it was called Rothman's Foundation, which, you know, obviously there's no way you could get a cigarette company to sponsor anything these days. But back then that was pretty normal. So they used to have like a, uh, a, a golf um, camp for like the juniors or talented players at the Australian Institute of Sport at the headquarters. And this was before the AIS had their golf program, but they were just about to start it. And obviously I caught the eye there of Ross Herbert, who was the coach or was about to be the coach. So then Ross was really interested in um, developing like raw talent. Um, you know, he, he obviously picked some of the best players, but sometimes we would have some players that came in, we think, well, they're not, you know, like if you looked at the list of people that applied, it might not have been necessarily the best amateur, but it was someone he thought had you know, the best, um, the highest ceiling, I guess. And, and that really excited him. So, you know, he picked like Kate, Ma- um, Kate McIntosh, who, you know, was a fantastic player, unbelievable talent um, at the AIS. But she came in and she was probably off six or seven. I mean, as handicap. And you wouldn't think a six or seven handicapper would get picked into an elite squad. She turned out to be a fantastic player. and um, But that was what, that's what Ross you know obviously saw in me was like a good raw player and funnily enough the other coach there was um Stephen Ban who was one of the you know the top coaches he coached um Allenby and Appleby and you know a bunch of fantastic players around the world and and I, I came away from that camp I was a five handicapper a month later I was off scratch just from going to that camp and then the next year I was in the AIS and then two years later I'm one of the best amateurs in the world so it happened really quickly um and it had a lot to do with getting into that program, getting into the AIS. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and even when I turned pro, it became very, you know, it, it, when you, you were always sort of told, well, can you beat the guys on the mainland? You know what I mean? You're from Tassie. It's like, okay, you're good, but can you beat, you know, the Victorian guys? And you play in the interstate. I remember one of the interstate series where I went undefeated. It was almost like I was just as surprised as everybody else because you – you go and play these guys like, oh, they're from Victoria. They've got to be better than me. You know, they're from New South Wales. They've, they just have to be. And then you play them and you find yourself, you're beating them. And it was, no, no one instilled in you that you should be better. You are better. Um, and, and there was never that confidence given to you coming from Tassie. And and then, then you broaden it out to the tall poppy syndrome in Australia. It's very similar. You become the best player in Australia. And it's like, well, that's good. But can you beat the guys in the US? Can you beat the people in Europe? And then you go and do that. It's like, okay, well, you're good as an amateur, but you know, you, the really good players are pros. Can you ever do it as a pro? So, you, you well, well, the kids coming out of America have a very different attitude. Where you might have a kid who's, you know, the best amateur in North Carolina, and there's no doubt in his mind that he's going to be great, and he's one of the best. He's the best amateur in the world, and he has this, and everyone's telling him how great he is, um, even if they, he's got no chance. Um, and obviously. I know which one's going to be better if producing good golfers versus the other. I mean, clearly giving people all the confidence in the world in a game that is basically, we've had books written about it. Golf is a game of confidence by, you know, Bob Rotella. I mean, when, when those sorts, when it's that important that I know that it's, it's pretty amazing um, where I came from and sort of the upbringing I had was like it's 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 intri- like it's just so different when I look at the the opportunity the guys have over here towards ad- their attitude. You know, it's interesting that you bring up, I guess, societal differences between Australia and America. I mean, it's that whole sort of psychology from a golfing perspective, which feeds into confidence, which feeds into belief, 
and that's the whole virtuous cycle. I've always thought, and, and certainly I've delved very deep into the into the books, such as Doctor Bob and Carl Morris and various other things. And you know, I, I, I think the ideal golf state is trying to get, or just trying to stay out of your own way. And I guess that probably happens more more to the likes of yourself, who are maybe a little a good deal more naturally talented than someone like me. But um, I mean, uh, how do you see? You know. Uh, I guess I suppose there's there's a there's a there's a level of, of proficiency you need to get to, and then would you agree that it's all about the five or six inches between your ears in terms of what actually differentiates the the good from the great? Yeah, um, well, talent's the entry fee, right? Everyone has talent. Um, there isn't a single player that's playing on a mini tour, major tour, foreign tour, tour you've never heard of that is not incredibly good at golf. There's very few players, like I remember playing or hitting balls um, or you play tournaments that Tiger Woods was playing in and you never felt like um, with other players that there was shots you can't hit. You know, I never felt like, you know, whether it was a, a high two iron to this flag or a spinny wedge or a, a drive here or whatever that you never played with, you, you very rarely played with anyone who hit shots where you're just like, I couldn't do that. So for the, for the rest of us, it just all comes down to there's a lot of luck involved, right? There's a fine line between, you know, something that ends up being a win that changes your life or, or, or a moment that gets you your tool cart. And, you, and we, we don't like to ascribe luck to um, what happens in life. We like to think it's all our own making, but there's more luck involved than, than, than ability. And, and then it's just when you when you it's it's making you know it's like you make 90 percent of your money 10 percent of your t- time that's kind of how it works it's like it's taking advantage of those moments and um and if you take advantage of those moments you can have an amazing career and if you don't you could be stuck on mini tours or grinding it out or find yourself in debt or like what like, like a lot of players do it's not that they're not good enough it's just there's quite a lot of luck and then there's obviously it's running into the right people, or the right mentors, or the right sports psychologists—all those sorts of things—just at the right time when you're open to it and it clicks with you, and all of a sudden you have that belief. But you know, the talent is the entry fee, so everyone's really good. And there's very few, there's very, there's very little separating, you know, 15 in the world to a thousand on ability, but the confidence, the consistency. Um, the big thing about tour golf, which I think a lot of people don't understand, is just it's not that um, you're hitting incredible shots all the time. It's just that you're hitting an incredibly high, an incredible high standard day in day out. It's not really feast or famine. It's really good golf day in day out, month in month out, year in year out, and then you sprinkle a little bit of luck on, and that's the week you win. You know, or that's the week you have your top ten, or you have your run of you know, top fives that get you your card or, or, or whatever it is. It's very rare for someone not to um, be playing at an incredibly high level all the time. So it really comes down to, you know, it, 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 it's, it's not lightning in a bottle for most guys. Can I ask you where you are with your golf at the moment? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I don't really have anywhere to play. I mean, I have Corn Ferry status. I had some injuries a couple of years ago, which sort of, put me into that in that sort of gray zone where you know you're not getting into tournaments you can do monday qualifiers um and 
yeah, so injury set me back a bit. But I was really lucky. I mean, I had sort of 20 years without any serious injury. You know, I had wrist surgery and then sort of a herniated disc in my back. And that's just sort of like, you know, sort of put the kibosh on everything. As much as I would love to, to get out there, it's just, it's, it's, um, it's incredibly competitive. Like, you know, you've got to, when you only get Monday qualifiers or one event or Q school, that's just one week and you're not, and you're not playing 30 or 40 events a year or 25 events, four round events um, a year. It's very difficult to just come out that week and have everything, you know, click for you. I mean, like it's, so I mean, I'm 47. I'm probably not far away from the senior tour. Um, my health is starting to get a bit better. I, I really enjoy playing. I miss competing. I love competitive golf. I would that's what I'd love to be doing, but it's just not what I'm doing at the moment. So hopefully I'll get an opportunity in the future. I get the feeling that again, from, from, from reading a, a good deal of your blog posts on the, on the Southern Bio Beach website, that you've been on a journey of sorts over the last maybe 10 to 15 years in relation to uh, enlightenment perhaps, and maybe a certain Michael Clayton Esquire is uh, somewhat responsible for that. I'd like you maybe just to speak a little bit about what Clates means to you, the influence he's had, and and maybe in relation to the wider golf space in Australia also. Yeah, I've known Clates, I mean, a long time. I mean, I, I don't know whether I met him before I turned pro. I probably did. Like he, um, like my grandfather used to uh, go to a lot of tournaments, him and Alf Goff, who were two members down at, um, at Royal Hobart. They were... They would host professionals. They would go to all the Australian Opens. They, would, they sponsored a few. They would help them out. Guys um, would stay at um, my grandfather's house when they came down for the Tassie Open. My mum was sort of like the you know the, the best junior and then the best um, amateur in the country for a long time. So they used to integrate some of those tournaments back then where, funnily enough, the women's amateur team that came off winning um, the Queen Syracuse Cup, I don't know whether it was in the 70s or the 80s, whenever it was, they were um, just as popular or more popular at the time than the professional men. So they, they would have, um, you know, mum would play um, in the Vic Open. They would have women's groups in between or they would play. This is, you know, this is way back when. You wouldn't think this was even a thing that would um, would be thought of back then. But so, yeah, my grandfather um, and, and my mum would have known Mike Clayton. Um, I mean, Clayton knew my grandfather. Um, he obviously knew my mum because he would caddy for Louise Bryars and Louise Bryars was one of the top um, amateurs that mum would play against and compete against. So they all kind of, I, I guess, knew each other. Um, but my first memory of Clayton was actually after my grandfather died and um, I was in a tournament in, was it Q School? No, I was, played my first tournament on the Asian tour and... Um, I remember it like, you know, like yesterday when getting a phone call from my dad saying that he'd died in a car accident and just being stuck in Malaysia, I think. And, and you know, you're devastated as a kid and, you know, it's still upsetting now to think about it. But sort of being stuck over there, you know, I was able to get back for the for the funeral and, and all those sorts of things. But then the very next week I was playing um, at the – I got an inv- invite to the um, – the Vines, which was the Heineken, which was actually, it might have been a European tour event back then. Uh, anyway, and... That's WA, yeah? Yeah, WA, yeah, yeah. And um, I remember being on the range on Monday, hitting some balls, and Clates walking past. And Clates was like, you know, a stalwart of the Australian tour, a winner of Europe. He was one of the, you know, the good players that, that I knew of. Um, and he came up to me and said, you know, 
so sorry about your grandfather. You told me a story about him and Alf Goff and said he was a great man and all those sorts of things that, you know, at the time mean a lot. And I mean, they still do now. Um, so I feel very loyal to Clates. But from then on, we, you know, you know, you, I played with him quite a bit. Um, we both had pretty severe tempers, so maybe we were kindred spirits there. I remember you, playing. You, you bet me to that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. I remember playing with Clates, and uh, you know, it, it's the first hole of the Cannon Challenge, and we're coming last. I mean, it's Sunday morning, I think, early. Um, we've just played the first hole, second hole. Clates skies his driver, just straight pop up and just rips the driver. As soon as he skies it, he turns around, just whops it into the ground, just buried a foot into the ground. And I I, I appreciate it because I'm just like, how can you be this angry, you know, (laughs) three shots into the round? Like, you know, something else has got to happen. So it was kind of funny. Um, And I think actually that was the day and, and... and the stories might cross over a little bit where he um, he talked about working on a course at Barnboogle Dunes. And I remember at the time telling him, why would you do that? Like there's perfect, you know, I don't think they'd even begun. They were talking about it or they were about to start. And my and I was kind of like, well, why would you start one up there? It's like it's miles away. Why don't you go down in uh, Seven Mile Beach? There's amazing land. It's right near the airport. Like it's right near Hobart. It's amazing. You should, you know, you should do that not knowing just how good Barn Boogle was. And it was funny, it was a few years, might have been a year or so later, and uh, we got talking about it again and I was sort of saying, well, why would you be doing it up there? It's in the middle of nowhere. And then he actually showed me some pictures of, um, of the land and, and the course and it was obviously, you know, blew my mind because there was nothing like that in Australia, like that style of golf or, or that style of, um, that type of land being developed for golf just hadn't happened. Um, so um, they definitely got that one right. And then um, I guess the, the long-winded story for, for Seven Mile Beach would be, you know, I had a foundation. Um, it was built around entrepreneurship. Um, Tassie's like a medicant state. We have, you know, third-generation welfare recipients and you always get that feeling growing up there that you'll never, that you'll never get out. Um, and I'm, you know, incredibly lucky to have lived the life I have growing up there because it doesn't happen for for a lot of people and i just got you know i just got lucky um i mean there's a lot of hard work involved but you know at the end of the day um you know I was, I was very fortunate so i was trying to do something around entrepreneurship and really the goal was just to show youth or um that you know just just because you're from tassie or just because you have an idea it's not a bad idea you know, to encourage that starting businesses, getting involved in businesses, you know, all, all those sorts of things are, are possible. Um, so I was, I was doing different things through the foundation and then the, the option, to, the opportunity to lease, um, take over the lease at Rosny Golf Course came up. And Rosny was a, um, you know, nine-hole public golf course, not very good. But I kind of had that idea of like, well, what if we did something to it, made it amazing, you know, we got, and it, really it was sort of like Sweetens Cove before Sweetens Cove. It was that sort of an idea. It's like, why don't we do that? But let's make sure everyone who works there um, is provided an opportunity they wouldn't have got, you know. And then if they work there, then one day 
people will know the golf course or know of it and they'll be able to get a job anywhere in the world because i mean that's the reality of a lot of these like for the for the kids that work at barn bugle dunes if they want to go and work at one of the top clubs in america or one of the top clubs in australia they're going to know they're going to have that on their resume and that speaks volumes you know so they might not have come from any pedigree or any or anything to suggest that they should be able to be on the ground staff at Marion or Pine Valley or, or wherever. But if you've worked at a top, you know, 30 golf course in the world, well, all of a sudden, you know, you know having that on your resume is so huge. So I wonder, I, I never had any illusions that it could be, you know, an amate, like on that sort of level, but I just had this idea that to give these kids this opportunity around working in whether it's agronomy or retail or service industry, everyone that worked there had to mentor kids and that's what it was going to be. So then we got really close to getting the, um, the lease and last minute we didn't get it. Someone else got it. So I was, um, I was kind of mad. And I'm like, you know what? Stuff it. Let's just build our own course at Seven Mile Beach. And that was really how that started. I then looked at... Um, all the ways why Seven Mile Beach didn't happen, really. It was, because um, it's like, if, if you look at the, if you took an aerial at night, you've got all this development corridor from Hobart down to Sorrel, which is kind of the, you know, across the causeway and, and, and further east of, um, of where Tasmania Golf Club and the airport is. And that's all lit up, that's lit up at night. And then there's this huge dark spot, which is Seven Mile Beach. The, or the peninsula at Seven Mile Beach, the spit. And it's about 900 acres and it, there's just nothing there. I mean, you would have thought through the years a beach town would, like the beach town on the other side of the airport, why isn't there one on this side of the airport? Like it's, it's pristine. Like you can't imagine this real estate hasn't been developed into housing or, or whatever or something. And then when I looked through the, um, you know, did some research back through, the various I'd heard of developments, but I went back and found through council records there was a development proposed in the 80s called the Island State Resort, which was a huge Japanese. When um, like some of the large Japanese real estate companies were you know developing all across the world, um, they'd had a huge I you know resort put in there, and it was built around a canal and you know a theme park, a resort course, a championship course, uh, you know housing apartments like you name it the whole thing was just built out but it was built out around working with the sand mine now even back then there's a there's a large section maybe half the area which is a sand which is you know has a mining lease on it which allows for the extraction of sand right so um the government you know as far as what i could tell had um had always seen it as something they had to protect and t- but they also had never made a decision on if it was going to be sand mined or when it was going to be sand mined so it was very difficult for any developers or for anyone to actually go in there and propose anything because there was always this you know specter of the well what if we want to use that for sand mining what if we want to do sand mining here or there but but when I actually looked at the land and walked across it, um, it was pretty obvious to me that the best land for golf wasn't in the sand mining area. You could use it, but it was relatively flat. So, and it was about the same time that the government actually made a decision and issued an extraction license 
to a sand mining company and they gave them, well, this is the area you can extract from. So I think that gave the government a little bit more com- um, comfort in that knowing that, okay, well, they've decided where the sand mine is going to be and how long the extraction is going to be and all those sorts of things. And I was actually approached them. I mean, I went through Aboriginal heritage. I went through flora and fauna. I went through coastal stuff. Was there like how it was zoned? Um, like this it was probably a, a good 12 months of... Um, digging through all sorts of council documents and, and, and state government records and all that sort of stuff to actually then have some confidence in the fact that, well, there's no reason there's not a golf course down here. Like there's no actual, there's no statutory or um, there's no zoning reason why. It was actually zoned open recreation, which allowed, made golf permissible. You could build a golf course. There was nothing stopping you, which was crazy, right? You have this amazing land, no one, no one had ever done it. So probably a year after that, um, I'd gone through all that. I called Clates up. I emailed him actually. And it was funny, I was looking through the, on my old computer, looking at the email records the other day because I emailed him and said, Clates, there's this amazing piece of land. I, I, I want to build a golf course. I want to try and look at building a golf course or investigate it. But you know, I don't have any idea. Can you come down and have a look? And I sent him a couple of pictures. Um, can you come down and have a look and just give me your, you know, give me, is it good? Is it bad? Do I have any idea what I'm talking about? Because Clates had gotten into, um, obviously, the golf construction and design part of his career then. You know, he he built Barn Bugle Dunes, but he involved in like a lot of the um, renovation work at Victoria and a few other places. So I don't think he replied. It's funny because he said he, he, he often says, oh, I came down straight away. I think it took me about two months for him to come back to me, which was funny when I look at it now. Um, so I think I emailed him in November and January. He's like, yeah, yeah, no, okay, I can come down and have a look. So he comes down the next day and that's when, um, you know, wandering around, um, he was, yeah, pretty much backed up everything I thought. Um, he was enamored with it, you know, has that famous, well, I don't know, infamous quote now, um, about when we're driving out, we just spent the whole day wandering around and, uh, you know, in his usual colorful language was well if we uh if we stuff this up it'll be the second best course in australia so which is like you know typical clates and sometimes you feel like you know it's funny because like every every client tells the architect that this course is gonna make their career and i think every architect um says the says the developer this is one of the the greatest pieces of land but it felt incredibly genuine at the time and um so i guess the that's where it all began and then a couple of months later um i had a meeting with the with the premier just in uh about basically um getting a basically a non-exclusive license to investigate the possibility of building a golf course so and that that's where it all began so over the next few years you know the the drudgery of um or the of trying to develop crown land uh, that path began. And thanks for sharing that that uh, introduction and to the to the to the story with us. You know, as I was going through the process of preparing for this, I came to the conclusion that I just ha- had a had a poem go round around in my head, which is a poem by William Butler Yeats, and I just want to share it with you. It's just about dreams and hopes, and uh, this one's actually really about unrequited love to a certain degree, but. 
it goes a little bit something like this. Had I the heavens embroidered cloths, enwrought with golden and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths, of night and light and the half-light, I would spread the cloths under your feet, but I, being poor, have only my dreams. I spread my dreams under your feet, tread softly because you tread in my dreams. And I guess in many ways, it, it's a wonderful poem by, by, by a very, very talented Irish, Irish poet, um, I suppose it, it, what I'd like to look at now is is how you've turned the dreams into reality because ultimately you're you're boosting the ground now and the guys are pushing sand and shaping things up and roughing them up and whatnot. I mean, how how you know how did you get from? Well, c- clearly, he was uh, he he was probably um, ahead of his time because I think he was aware of what um, government bureaucracy yeah. can do. To I mean, I, I can, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> you know, I mean, like you say, you met with the, you met with the, pre- the premier, which is great. And I'm sure that, that opened a lot of doors for you, but there's still a lot of red tape and environmental studies and, and, and as you say, indigenous studies and whatnot. I mean, when did you get it really in your head saying, you know, I've invested, you know, emotionally in this. I've invested time, probably invested money. When did you? When did it? it when did the penny drop? Saying, "Well, I just got to go and do this." Yeah. Well, to begin with, as I said, it was it was more about my foundation, um, and I, I was really passionate about. Well, what if we could build an amazing golf course, a resort like Barn Bugle Dunes, and we could have every every department have to mentor. Um, disadvantaged or, or however you want to however you want to call it kids that weren't given these sorts of opportunities and we could take these kids and and put the equivalent of barn bugle dunes on their resume or working in a world-class restaurant or working in a world-class in a you know hotel all those sorts of things just the 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 paths and the opportunities that would open up to you know kids that didn't have that opportunity or wasn't presented to them um, so that's what it really started off being about. Um, now, for enable for that to happen, there had to be, you know, some, there had to be a lot of investment, and there had to be, um, there had to be a carrot, really. So to begin with, my my idea was, well, you know, this is a be an amazing place to live, and uh, there's no reason why it can't be developed into some limited housing or some or something to basically pay for the. To, Basically, have that incentive for guys to be like, "Yep, you can have the golf course. Um, the foundation can have the golf course, and we'll um, we'll do the housing, and you know, off you go type thing." So that was really the arrangement to begin with. You know, I had some investors, and I and I, I really sort of brought in a group of people that I felt had um, more than just just money. They had skills. So whether it was, you know, we had an investor who had skills in being a superintendent or someone who had skills in finance or someone had skills in media or um, hotel development, all those sorts of things. I was trying to get everyone involved so they had a role to fulfill um, and would be vested in the project beyond just, you know, their, their capital return. So that was going to involve some um, rezoning and all that sort of stuff. And I felt like we got really close, but, you know, there were some political reasons around it, um, being close to the airport and all those sorts of things. And in the end, it got, you know, knocked back. Um, the rezoning got knocked back. But we got the golf course. And so I'm thinking, well, we got the golf course, guys. We won. 
like this is amazing like no like can you believe we've got this piece of land to build a golf course or no one because no one took it seriously no one thought it was possible you know there's a lot of like i like to um you know the main attitude i run into tasmania a lot is why would you why would you do that you know i'm gonna you know i'm gonna go down to the beach why would you do that i'm gonna be a golfer why would you do that we're gonna build a golf course why would you do that this is you know we can just be here do why just brawl hobart's good enough like all that sort of stuff that is just like an entrenched attitude and um so so to come out the other side and be like you know we won we got we're going to have this opportunity to build this amazing golf course um but then of course without the financial incentive guys were not that interested it's like oh okay we gave it a good try we didn't get the housing bad luck um that's that um so you know, I, we tried to bring in some other people along the way. I had lots of discussions, you know, trying to find people that were more interested in doing, um, you know, I always want it to be a public golf course. I think it's really important that, you know, I think as Clates mentioned on your podcast earlier, and he, um, that you just, to be able to go and play a top 100 golf course in the world, anyone can and turn up and just pay a fee and be done. And it's not expensive. Um, I think having that access to amazing architecture is you know it really is a way to bring people into into golf because you know you can't i don't know it's like you can't go and play tennis at wimbledon i mean if you go and take that tour and you stand in there and you look around you're like oh wow this place this is incredible Imagine can i just sneak out there and hit one serve on the you know center court at wimbledon well you can't yet i can go and tee it up at, at st andrews but there are other places that have these hallowed grounds that are really difficult to get on or even when you get on you don't you you know you don't belong like you're very very early on in the process you realize well you're not a member you're worse if you're not even the guest of a member and you're just paying some exorbitant fee you know as a non-member guest like you're you're really not you know they're, they're pretty quick to want to show you the door um so it was difficult to find investment and um you know, and these permits don't last forever. You know, a permit was going to expire. Um, and I, I just, maybe it was the competitiveness in me. I'm just like, there's just no way I'm going through all that and not building this golf course. Like, it has to be built. So, um, you know, a, a good friend of mine, um, we've sort of, well, we've, we've got it done, basically. <laughs> we validated the permit. We got substantial commencement. And, um, and that was just such a huge milestone for the project. And really, we're, it's very much in the spirit of, um, of Barn Bugle Dunes. You know, it, it's, not, it's not someone coming down with... It's not a sand valley setup where you have, you know, you're trying to roll out a, a, a huge resort, 36 holes, day one. You know, it's very much that, you know, that ethos around Barn Bugle Dunes where we're just, you know... We're doing it, um, you know, with, you know, budget conscious, um, not, not going to go too crazy. And we're, we're not trying to roll out some crazy hotel and, and, and overspend. And we're just trying to get the best golf course possible. And then the success of the course will then hopefully drive us to be able to have the ability to build course, you know, too, and the hotels and, and all this other stuff or accommodations that we want to do. But that's sort of the ethos around it. Little acorns, as it were. I mean, kudos to you guys. I mean, obviously, the 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 the, the circuitous 
permitting process, obviously permission sorted. You know, for those that haven't seen pictures of the site either before the trees were removed or are now that the vistas have been opened up, can you explain to us what the canvas looked like uh, and and what it looks like now and and why it's perfect for golf? Yeah, I mean, I guess I can I probably long winded um, answer the last question. I probably didn't go back through what actually I need what actually happened from a from a process standpoint. So, from a process standpoint, you you know, we, we got permission basically to investigate the site because it's crown land. So you just can't go wandering in there and doing whatever you want. You need to have, uh, you know, a license. Um, and it was a non-exclusive license. So it wasn't like they gave us any favors. It was basically saying, you can go and do that. And anyone else who, at the same time can come and investigate the same thing or for another purpose, they can do whatever. So you do that and then you have to do a development application um, through the council, the local council. But you can't lodge anything with the local council without a few different departments of the state government giving you consent. So you needed um, Parks and Wildlife, which oversees the area. You needed their consent for anything you wanted to do. And um, you needed um, and Crown consent for anything you wanted to do. So, bef- so you can go through the process of um, getting development application. And development application is not just your routing. It's like your hydrology report, your flora and fauna report, your um, erosion report, or your coastal inundation reports, and all that sort of stuff, coastal reports, your um, bushfire or your fire management report, your traffic report, your, um, what else? There's probably another one in there that I'm missing. There's probably about six or seven reports you have to get done to support your development application. So everything you want to do. Then, so you spend all the money doing that um, and then you take that to council. And before you, before council will accept it, you need to have a piece of paper signed by the um, property services, which was um, Crown back then, that says, you can lodge that. We give you approval to lodge that. Now, don't think for a minute that you're going to hand that document to send that into crown and they're going to turn around and give it to you the next day you know what i mean it can just sit on the someone's desk for months and months and months and months and months you mean it doesn't happen straight away no it's amazing isn't it yeah it's it's, it doesn't happen straight away so so for everything you want to do or for every change you want to make or anything you need to adjust invariably it involves the tick of approval from you know from crown land because they're the owners of the land so it's it's really tricky so it's so it's in the it's in the municipality or the the council clarence council is the area the loan the land's owned by um the crown but it's managed by parks um, and wildlife so you have three different um bureaucracies that all have a say in everything you want to do so it's it's yeah it's painstaking and um and you, you just, it, 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 everyone has different agendas and everyone has different people they need to answer to and everyone has as, as different, um, and, and a lot of them don't necessarily understand golf. They don't understand what you're trying to do. And in that respect, that's where Barn Bugle Dunes, um, like there's no way Seven Mile Beach happens without Barn Bugle Dunes, not because, um, not because Seven Mile Beach's land wasn't good enough to have golf. There's just no way anyone in 
the government would see golf as a um, as a valuable use of that land, right? But like we all know the values of golf. We all know the values of public golf. You know what it provides for the community, what it provides for health. Um, yeah, we like we all know the, the the values of public golf and just what it can do for the greater community and just what the open spaces is. But there's there's very um, there's very little understanding, especially within government at the time. And pre Barn Bugle Dunes, I'm sure there was no understanding of that. So Barn Bugle Dunes opened the eyes of, you know, whether it was tourism, uh, whether it was just just global recognition. Um, international travel interstate travel all these sort of key economic indicators jobs there was like the scottsdale mill closed down in in tassie which was devastating for that area and and i think pretty much all those jobs were replaced at barn bugle dunes so that is incredibly powerful especially when you know governments are looking for elections or governments are looking for you know their kpis or whatever so it really it put the ability of us to talk to Crown Land and for them to go through this process. It, it made it possible. And, it, and so, you know, there were, there were people in, in government that understood the power of, you know, tourism and golf and what it can do for the community and all those sorts of stuff. And that's not to say that everyone in the community, you know, agrees with that or, you know, feels the same way. And, and there's a lot of misunderstanding around... Everyone thinks golf is elitist. Everyone thinks golf is like, we want to keep you out of there. We're like, it's going to be a private club. And, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions and it doesn't matter how many times you tell them, it's like they don't trust you. You know, there's a there's a strong uh, horse riding community that likes to use the area. And I grew up around horses. I love horse riding. Like my sister's, you know, an amazing horseman. And like we've had horses in our lot like in our family for you know generations like the like if you ever wanted someone who thinks horses should be allowed to roll you know be share the land like i'm the person but none of that is that they think that we're going to stop them from riding across and we're going to make it harder for them when really we want to make it easier so we have you know you're sort of fighting a lot of those community misconceptions and then you get sort of a vocal minority who likes to go to the meetings and they participate well, a lot of people who are supported are not going to go to council meetings and, you know, create a fuss or get up and start singing songs and crying at meetings, which is what we had happen to us. So that that's sort of like what you're up against. So then even once you go through that and you get your permit, before you start, Crown Land has to give you permission to start. So even with a development application, even with an approved um, permit, even with you know, you think you've got the development, they can still say, well, we don't actually give you permission to build it. So, like, it can be maddening, right? Um, like, we were running up against our deadline, we are running up against, you know, COVID had hit, and then all of a sudden someone in the mines department is um, bringing up, you know, the, the when the permit was approved seven years ago, the, you know, the the boundary was five metres off or something, you know, like the road that we wanted to was going to be in the mining lease by five metres and stuff like that. So so that we had we spent months and months negotiating that through and all of a sudden it's pushing us to get to the point where we're going to lose the permit, all right? So we, anyway, we ended up getting through that 
somehow getting the road built in you know a couple of months and you know we would substantially commence but that is sort of the thing you're up against when you they're like that's the nuts and bolts of how we got to where we are now um to answer your second question the actual site itself (laughs) um, so it is just covered in pine trees and what i mean like I, i posted some pictures on the on the website about that kind of showed that sort of back in the, um, you know, the 30s and 40s, well, pre, pre-30s and 40s, it was just farmland. It had white gums and banksias, and I think it was like grazing land. Then at some point it was given, um, the land was given to, was given uh, tree rights to, you know, one of the forestry companies, and they grew plantation pines um, on all the flat sections. So the dunescape um, has massive dunes, really, and they come up out of nothing. Like the land's quite flat. And then you have sort of like your frontal dunes, which are kind of your typical, you know, edge of the, edge of the ocean dunes that have sort of some rippling, and then it rises up to one main dune. But, you know, you know, 60 or 100 years ago, there was, there was no pine trees on it. It was just all gum trees, and it really looked more like a – it was a – it was a moving dune. Like it didn't really have any, there was no marum grass, there was nothing on it. So in about that time, they introduced pine plantations, but they also introduced marum grass all over Tasmania and other, you know, blame that on the English, you know. Um, another They're sort of introdu- Sorry to <laughs> my English friends exactly. out there. Um, <laughs> um, so they introduced marum all over Tassie to sort of, um, you know, to contain the the moving dunes on the sand on on the coast and all that sort of stuff. But I but but marum tends to trap sand and make the dunes very irregular, irregular shapes and very sharp. And at the end of the spit, the land is almost unusable for golf without doing some a lot of sort of um you know dirt work. But so all of a sudden, it got slowly over the years because it was wasn't managed at all just covered in these pine trees and they're not a good pine tree they're not like they're radiata pine which which don't have they have sort of a very thin um foliage to them they're not like that classic christmas tree fir or what you get in europe they're sort of an american tree that is just grows fast and they cut down their the, the wood is used for um for also like, also known as also sorry about also known as uh, monterey pines i believe um, I'm not, I think Monterey pines are a little bit better. I'm not sure. Okay, you could be right, um, but they're not like the yeah. They're not like the anyway. They get used for some of the vertical timber in um, um, built construction materials. They grow quick. They turn them over quickly. All that sort of stuff. So they had just taken over the site, and they'd been there untouched for you know decades so now they're at their end of their lifespan they're really looking ratty and old and, and, and they're not a good tree but you couldn't see you know 10 feet in front of you, <laughs> you, know, you but you could look at a topographical map you could feel that there are areas where there was gaps and you could definitely see where oh you could see a hole here you could see a hole there or this land felt and it was funny because like i'd go for a walk with clates and clates be like well that feels like that's a good par four there and you'd be like what the hell are you talking about it's like well i've just we've just walked across trudged across fallen down trees and i can't see 50 feet in front of me and you've decided we've come across a good path 
I'll, I'll believe you. I'll, like, you. You can be the expert in that. Um, but the the cleared end was where you walk out where the trees hadn't got to yet. Like you'd look across that and it was just obvious. Like, oh, this is going to be amazing for golf. Just before the next few minutes get a little bit too confusing for you, I wanted to provide some additional context in relation to the uh, conversation. Matt Goggin first spoke to Mike Clayton about the Seven Mile Beach property in 1997. At the time, Mike was in partnership with Bruce Grant and John Sloan as part of Mike Clayton Golf Design. Clates would then go on to partner with Jeff Ogilvie, Mike Cocking and Ashley Mead, the Ash and Mike that Matt references. Clates is now working with CDP Golf, Mike Clayton obviously, Mike DeVries and Frank Punt. I hope the additional context is useful. When Clates and um, OCM, or I guess it was OC when it was first, it was Ogilvy um, Clayton when he first Back when Jeff in. had a moustache. Yeah, yeah, way back when. When they got the topographical map and they showed where the golf course was, I'm like, well, why wouldn't you go down the end? They're like, well, it's too choppy. It's no good for golf. I'm like, well, there you go. The, the, the area I thought was going to be the best that you know you don't even use. And you um, did find the site, though, to be fair. Yeah, I did. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I found, I found, I found, I found, there, was a, there was a lot of work done to, to get them to tell me. I had no idea. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so once the trees came off, it, it was funny, like walking around – um, it was actually interesting going through the whole process between really two different architects, um, even though Clates was involved heavily all the way through. And it was really, it was my loyalty to Clates um, all along because I always felt, I always wanted Clates to be involved. Clates was a person I told about at first. Clates was a person who came down and visited the site. Clates was the person who came down and helped me present to the premier. Um, so... You know, I never felt right with Clates not being involved. So when um, when the decision was made to sort of open it back up, because it, it had been so long, I think, um, and, and to be fair to, um, you know, Mike and Ash, like they wanted to have another look and start from scratch again. Um, and basically like, you know, they had obviously felt like the routing they had done probably they needed to have a fresh look and come down. And, and at that point, it was like, well, okay, if, I'm, if we're going to start from the beginning, I mean, I may as well have a think about like where, um, um, if, we're, if we're just going to have, you know, a, basically start from scratch, that maybe I could start thinking about other, other potential um, suitors. Um, so then, you know, I contacted Clates and said, mate, um, here, I actually was just calling him to talk about something else. He's like, I'm actually not with um, OCM anymore. I'm like, wait, what? I mean, I had no idea. I hadn't spoken to those guys for a while. I didn't know the ins and outs of what had been happening. So when um, when Mike came down and Mike and Mike came down, had a, a week wandering around, it was really interesting to see how, you know, they work differently and, and the different ideas they had. And it's really a very different golf course to what was first planned, you know, and I'm, I'm probably sure that um, uh, OCM would probably come up with a different routing second time around as well. But when we're walking that routing, um, you always sort of felt like, well, we'll be able to see the water from here. And if we get, if we get up into this high tee here, maybe we'll get a glimpse of it over there. And it'd be, geez, it'd be nice if we could see the mountain from this tee. We know it's back through through the pine trees. So maybe when they're cleared, we'll be able to see something. So when the trees came off, 
um, and you went out there, it was, it was like, it was shocking really. I don't think anyone had walked around there and then goes down there now um, is going to be dumbfounded because you can see the water from everywhere. You can see the mountain from everywhere. You can see Spectacles Island. You can see Lewis. Like you can see all, everything that was there to be seen that was hidden, you can now see, which just sort of elevated the, you know, the feeling around, well, not only have we got, you know, what, you know, is excellent, excellent landforms, really interesting topography, a great medium to work in. We've also got views, which is, you know, as Mike Kaiser loves to talk, and we're, and we're a retail golf course, and Mike would always talk about, you know, the retail golfer, and, you know, Mackenzie would always say that he never knew how good, you know, Cypress Point was because it was so beautiful. Maybe, you know, he, he actually doubted that it was maybe his best golf course because it was too pretty. So there's no way it can be judged um, fairly against, you know, one of his other golf courses. Um, so it's been very exciting. Sorry, my dog's going. Wait for my dog here. Quite right. Um, yeah, so that was so. So having the land open up and have all those views was um, incredibly exciting. And then it also enables us to. There were some areas where you're not quite sure. It's like, well, it looks a bit. We'll go down here and we'll play to this green, you know, this green site here, and the trees are gone because you know we try and walk another area. It's like it's just too. Too, too steep up there you know we can't do anything with much and then when when the trees came off it became really obvious that oh no you can use that piece of land or all oh, that hole will be better there so it's always evolving and it's a lot of infield design but it has changed a little probably continue to change like tees will change greens will change but the the actual sort of loops that have been constructed and and the overall you know idea of the routing has stayed the same since um since um mike and mike were down there last year I heard Clyde speak about a big, huge, humongous punch ball grin, which uh, I thought he might speak about when I spoke to him in the, the last episode. He didn't. Uh, uh, does that still exist? Or, or no? I got rid. That, that's this is uh this is always a bit of a joke to um that I have with uh, with Clayton and Mike. It's just like you know I'm going to say no one day, and you're going to have to be prepared for it. I don't want any grumpiness when I say no. You can't do that because so often, like my philosophy is you're the experts, right? Like you've built world-class golf courses. Um, you just do what you need to do and, and I'll, I'll try and facilitate that as best as I can. But I'm also going to gently remind you of like what we're trying to do. What, you know, I've read a few Mike Kaiser articles and listened to him talk about and you try and mirror that and saying, look, okay, well, what, what is the guy who's paying 140 bucks around going to get really excited or about versus architectural, you know, nerds or you know the sort of the so it's that balance between we want to build the best golf course possible. We also want to build a great experience, and in, to be honest, you have to build a great business because if you don't build a great business, it doesn't matter if it's a great golf course because it'll be closed. You know, within a couple of years and it'll just be growing over and everyone will forget it existed. So it's really, it's a tension that you um, have to be mindful of. So, you know, the great thing about those two guys is they're very aware of that. And, you know, they. it's it's an interesting watching them work, the way they talk, the the things they discuss. 
it's a very there's no one is no idea is sort of off limits or is a bad idea really everything is really is talked through and they'll entertain you know any of my crazy ideas or or just you know if i go on some long soliloquy about something they'll listen intently and then just ignore it afterwards but they still entertain it so it's been uh it, it, like they're they're a great um it's a really it's a really nice collaborative process to feel involved but i don't have um any uh misconception that i have any idea about what i'm talking about so i generally just let them do what they want to do let's remember mackenzie did say in his uh, seminal book that if you want a cool green just just talk to the village idiot and get them to make flat <laughs> yeah exactly exactly the uh i could i could probably do that because i at the big dig at the john deere um tournament uh they they would have this thing on the Wednesday called the Big Dig where they let you get on machinery, mm-hmm. and they have this they have this perfect you know paddock where they have some excavators and some dozers and some skid steers and loaders and stuff, and but they had a grader, right? You could jump on the grader and you had to and the guy would grade it perfectly flat and then you'd go next to him on another section and try and grade it perfectly flat. <laughs> How'd that go? <laughs> yeah, not yeah. Hopeless, and he would come straight in behind you. Go, there you go. <laughs> it's easy. So I, I have, you know, I'd have utmost respect for those guys how they can do that. So I agree. But yeah, the, unfortunately or fortunately, because it might be a better hole without it. Um, the punch bowl, the original punch bowl, which was, it's funny enough with the trees off. When you go in there, it is, would have been. It's just so outrageous and so big that um, it's probably a little bit over the top. But it, interesting, the land has so many of those sorts of landforms it's easy to get caught always trying to put like that's a great green site sitting in amongst those dunes you could build basically 18 in the ground punch bowl green so you've got to really start finding those getting away from that otherwise it becomes a bit repetitive but yeah the original insane punch bowl is gone i know you've played sand uh, sand hills in nebraska um i'm minded to just mention and remind listeners that they do not know they don't know about obviously designed by bill core and uh ben grenshaw I think they spent two years wandering around that site and maybe routed up to 140 holes. And uh, there's actually, I saw a hand sketch of all the holes together as to where they might go. And I guess once they made the decision where they were going to start, then then would we go left or right? And then ultimately it became quite obvious where they had to go because ultimately when you make two decisions, you're ultimately then driven by where the nearest tee is and, and so on and so forth. Um, I guess going back to your, your your mention of the John Deere Classic, I'm inspired to ask you, when you were down in Seven Mile Beach, uh, I think earlier earlier this month, did you get a go in the, in the big machines? We hadn't got them on site yet. So I was down the first week of January and that's what I was busy running around organising for them. So I'm going back down in March um, and it sounds like there's plenty of machinery that I can jump on and... I can be the village idiot, maybe. Well, best of luck with that. I hope you, uh, I hope you, I hope you stay at <laughs> Jurian and Lucas's way. They're, they're, I believe they're uh, Mike, Mike DeVries is having a bit of a masterclass down there for them. Um, how are they getting on with uh, their tentative steps in uh, heavy machinery operation? Yeah, I think it's been. I think it's obviously awesome for them because, um, I mean, you don't get an opportunity to build golf courses. I mean, you just don't. I mean, you get a lot of renovation work. You get a lot of stuff that's already there, but just a, a completely new, raw, untouched site 
So there's a lot of the difficulties that go with that, with having to spend more time cleaning the site than you do talking about, you know, fancy holes or green shapes or, you know, or hazards or stuff like that. I mean, they're out there pushing, you know. There's there's, there's some big sections of dunes that needed to be softened. Um, there's a hell of a lot of cleanup work that goes around with um, just the mess of removing all those pines and, and getting the, the substrate ready for grass. So... Yeah, they're getting um, they're getting a, a a real you know masterclass in everything. It's not just walking around with a set of plans, pointing about. Oh, for sure, it's having those classic pictures yeah, yeah. taken. It's it's long hours in doses. Yeah, and, and it's picking up stones and sticks and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, yeah. Weeds and whatever else. Well, that's that's what um, that's what, when. When I was down there earlier and Mike was saying, we need to get a doze, we need to get this, we need to get that. And I said, it's all right. They can just wander around and pick up pine cones all day. <laughs> They'll be out there for 60 years, but the I'll same thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, Someone's going to have to do it. I noticed that Lucas is, uh, is assiduously capturing the evolution of the site, both with his camera and obviously the drone footage as well. Is this chronicling a conscious decision, decision by you guys or is it a CDP inspired approach or whoever's responsible it's certainly whetting my appetite for what's to come yeah I think um, something we always you know they've been very you know um, purposeful in wanting to again because I, you just don't get these opportunities very often and I, I think they're very they're very conscious in wanting to capture as much of the process um, on film as they can and you know and as far, i mean i'm a little bit more of the opinion that let's capture it but let's not post it so I, i'm i'm holding back a lot of stuff <laughs> i'm not i'm sure they would love to and but I, I want i want it to be more like when we used to watch the masters and you didn't know what the third hole was you know i, I want for the people to experience the didn't start until under the back nine like yeah, exactly, exactly. So so I would like it to have that. But we'll show the progression, we'll show some of the holes and we'll show, um, you know, just the ins and outs of what's going on down there. But really, I would like to have sections, entire sections of the course that you'll only get to experience if you go and play there or go and walk around. Um, anyway, before it opens, because obviously once it opens, people were just going to... Um, do what they want to do. But that, that's sort of my feeling around it. But it, I mean... It, it, it just, it, it, I mean, it helps a lot with the marketing and driving the interest and all those sorts of things, which is important in trying to drive business and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there's also, we're also being very purposeful about trying to have a sense of mystery and not, you know, it, it, it becomes, you don't want to overhype, but we all get very excited about it and probably talk a bit, you know, with a bit too ebullience around it. Um, so maybe we should, uh, you know, we, we just don't want to disappoint. <laughs> Because we're all very excited. You know, uh, I, I straight out of the Tom Doak playbook in terms of holding stuff back. And and, and I certainly know with uh, a recent development here in Rossapena, and um, we'll actually have Frank Casey Jr. and uh, Clyde Johnson on a couple of weeks' time talking about the, the, the development of St. Patrick's along similar lines to yourself in this conversation. But I know Tom and Frank were very keen to hold stuff back uh, and maybe give a little bit of a teaser and then ultimately people would explore it themselves when they opened opened up last June. And I have to say, they've done a phenomenal job up there. Um, 
and, and and one of these days when you're over, we must get you up. Uh, we, we'll get you a bit of golf around, around Dublin, first of all. Have you played much golf in Ireland last year, by the way? Well, no, I've obviously played the Irish Open a few times, but it was never at... Um... It was never at any of the classic golf courses. Okay. It was always, um, what was it, Druid's Glen and um, what was the other place? The, uh, Killarney? Down near Greystone. Is it, it was down near Greystone? That'd be, that'd be, that'd be Druid's Glen would be now down near Greystone. That was Druid's right. Glen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you're probably yeah, talking about Carton maybe... House maybe, something like that. Mm. Yeah, and the K Club was another one. So no, I didn't, I mean, I, 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 I would, I visited Ireland a few times and I have, I've walked around quite a few golf courses, but um, I never got, haven't been lucky enough to play a lot of them. Mate, hit hit me up. We'll we'll sort you out uh, yeah, big yeah. time. So uh, listen, just going back to Seven Mile Beach, I just I get the feeling that authenticity, a sense of place, really appear to be important to you. Um, obviously, you've laid out the values of of, of Seven Mile Beach sort of along the lines of Tasmanian feel, Tasmanian values. And showcasing the Tasmanian landscape, how 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 do you think that will feed into the the ambience and the and and the the mo of of Seven Mile Beach? Yeah, I mean, I stole that from my visit to um and and when I wrote about that, that was just um talking to the uh, Kyle, the superintendent there at um at Sandhills when we played golf. I kind of asked he he talked about basically that Young's cap wasn't he wasn't trying to create a great golf course. He It wasn't like he saw it as, you know, you know, I'm going to build this world-renowned golf course. He just basically said that that's what it, like that, that was his goal. And like San, I mean, it's an amazing place because it captures exactly that. It captures exactly that. Even though it's a, you know, very exclusive, super private golf course. When you go there, it feels very, um, middle America like the people that work there all live in the town and they've all worked there since the day it opened all the kids at Caddy go to the local high school like it has like incredible ties to the area and um, you know the way like one of the most um, sort of the only sort of dictum I guess for the members is if you don't treat the staff well you're out Basically, I don't care who you are. You got to treat the. You have to treat the staff with respect. And I, and I guess you know there ha, there has been the odd member who's been asked to you know resign over that sort of thing. So so it was my trip there that just you know I thought if we could capture anything like that in a public setting um, that showcased you know what Sand Hills does for you know the Nebraskan Sand Hills, we'd be you know on our way to, you know, a successful um, experience for everyone, an experience people would want to come back to. And that's really the key to, you know, any public golf course. It's, it's not whether people hear about it and fly in and do it once and go, okay, that was cool, I've done that, bucket list, let's go. You know, you want to make it um, approachable enough, affordable enough to where they want to just keep coming back and back because it's, yeah, they love the golf, but they love, the accommodations they love the experience they love being in hobart they love the people and it becomes more than just oh you know the fifth hole or whatever it is um and and that i mean that's what sandhills does an amazing job of really and i mean i guess um, that was sort of the goal around um or the ethos that we're trying to put in down at, 
at Seven Mile Beach. It's like, we want it to be inclusive. We want it. I mean, and they're not just buzzwords either. It's like, I want it to be affordable. Like, I have all these, you know, crazy ideas, especially for around young people trying to get them introduced to the game, whether it's free for them or whether there's a course for them or whether the practice fairway is free for kids and you build an unbelievable um, practice facility um, where you can just go and practice, get exposed to one of the best practice facilities in the world and it costs you nothing. You hit balls all day, you can hang out there all day, fine. Um, you know, because that's what I was exposed to, N- not necessarily on the facilities, but just being around um, a golf club um, and have that sort of club-like atmosphere, but it to be open to everyone and not just a limited view. Now, I have a picture in my head of, of a place... Uh, that's getting more vivid as we speak. So community, maybe a Himalayas type putting green. There's going to be dogs there. I know there's going to be dogs, dogs and dogs and horses, um, possibly tied up outside out of the bar, um, and great golf. I mean, it just sounds it just sounds wonderful. And, and I, look, I, and I think you know, I certainly heard Clay speak about you know, if you do a, a you ask a, a sample of of members in any golf club, you know. You ask them to stand up. Whoever whoever started their golf and the public facility, everyone stands up. Even even in Port Marnock and Royal Port Rush and and and, and Royal Melbourne and whatever it is. Um, and and you know the 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 Scots have it right in terms of the you know the the right to roam and 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 the fact that there aren't fences per se and integration the community and it's just part of of their DNA and and somewhere else, somewhere along the line we've 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 lost that sort of connection and outreach and uh, and become more introspective yeah i mean i think the one word for me is approachable um and i mean so when i was playing in the dunhill a few years back i'd finished it was i'd played at carnoustie that day or whatever and i was um it was a beautiful afternoon i'd finished so i decided to, i was going down to the town um to grab a coffee and so i grab a coffee and then i grab some fish and chips and i just go and sit on the back of the 18th green right at st andrews and i'm sitting there and i've got my i'm listening to music and i'm looking out over you know the 18th at the first as players are finishing and it's just like what an incredible place to be like even if I didn't play golf, even if I didn't know anything about it, to, to just to be able to be here in this environment um, is, uh, you know, is special. So I want it to be a great golf course and I think that's incredibly important and it's incredibly important being a successful business and if you want to achieve anything else down there, it has to be a successful business. So that's sort of the key. But I also want it to be people to come down there who don't play golf and just hang out because it's such a beautiful environment, because it, it is so pretty and because it is so approachable and because you can take your dog for a walk or if you've ridden your horse down or you just want to have a beer and you just want to go and sit up and watch people finish golf or you want to walk through the golf course, whatever it is, I think we shouldn't, um, like it shouldn't just be ours just because we're golfers, you know. Like that. there's, I, I understand the sort of, wanting to have something to be private and to not have people walking across it and all that sort of stuff and to have your own little slice of heaven but i also think it's nice that um you let other people enjoy it as well and you know they don't necessarily have to be golfers to enjoy it 
Sure. I mean, I, look, I, I'm, you know, I guess getting back into the, or certainly peering down the rabbit hole, I, I've, I've searched high up and low down for that quotation with Bobby Jones on, on, and the appreciation and understanding of architecture. For the life of me, I, I have it somewhere. I just couldn't really well find it. So we're going to actually use a Tom Doak quotation instead. Um, so everything you need to know about golf architecture is in Scotland. Do you agree? Um. Well, no, not really. I, I think everything you need to know, well, very specifically, everything that's come out of Scotland or every other golf course is probably influenced through what's come out of Scotland, whether direct or indirectly. So if you're a, you know, you, you, you can have someone who's obsessed with, you know, C.B. McDonald um, and say that, that came out of, that architecture came out of Scotland and it's very directly referenced. But if, but if you looked at, um, a CB like a Seth Rayner course and said that's influenced and went and played St Andrews and tried to call a direct reference you'd be like there's no reference like you know the road hole is nothing like that you know it, it's kind of a it, it's a weird interpretation it's like um, so I, I guess it depends on your if, if I think if you if you're well read it's a hundred percent accurate but if you're um, if if you know nothing about golf course architecture and you try and draw that um, Augusta is somehow, you know, or or uh, TPC, you know, Sawgrass is somehow influenced from golf in Scotland. No way, <laughs> just, there's no influence. But but uh, but you understand it if you're a little bit more, um, you know, knowledgeable on it, on read on it. And I, I think to me, Scott, like english golf scottish golf links golf is real golf i've always felt that way i always felt like that after playing the u.s tour or playing um you know in australia when you stand on a links golf course it just feels right and i don't know whether it's because it is so natural that there doesn't seem to be any manipulation that it's just sitting there that um it feels uh it, it just you know it everything about golf in in the uk feels right to me um, but in saying that, it's hard to like, man, you go and play Royal Melbourne and it's hard to see that there was necessarily directly that they're the same thing, you know? So maybe everything is, you can learn from golf course architecture is in, in, um, in Scotland, but it doesn't end there. I don't think, I think, uh, I think you have to travel the world and you can see all sorts of things. Um, cause the sand belt is very different to anything that's in Scotland and, you know, um, the 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 courses of the northeast or the courses of um, you know the resort or the desert courses I mean like them or loathe them you, you know they 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 bring something they bring something uh, you've teed me up for the next question very well thank you <laughs> as a tour pro who's travelled around the world you've obviously undoubtedly got to experience some great golf courses it's at this point that I ask guests what they're five or six top private golf courses are and, and why they've chosen them? Um, I mean, I love Royal Melbourne. That's my favourite. Um, I could play there. I mean, funnily enough, I was the year between uh, finishing school and getting into the Australian Institute of Sport. I worked at Royal Melbourne for a little bit for a summer and I could play the composite course every night and I did. Um, Prick. I played yeah, exactly every night. Every night. I was the only one out there. I didn't see a single member. I'd just go comp, just go rent. Summer, I'd play till dark every night. 
Um, and I absolutely love that place. I don't think there's anything else like it in the world that even comes close. Um, the, as I said, St. Andrews, just the connection to the town um, is everything you need to know about golf and community, really, about, you know, what the impact golf can have or the, the, the um, relationship golf can have with a town and a community. And it's, you know, it's mecca for golfers. Um, as far as like tournament golf, um, where I really enjoy Riviera because I just think it's a horrific piece of land that there's no way there should be a golf course there. It's a just a it's a wash. It's a small piece of land and it's very boring boring landforms and there's no way you should be able to build a golf a great golf course there. So that's um uh, that's that's genius to me how they've created an unbelievable golf course there. Um where else do I really enjoy? Like Augusta's incredible. Um I think um I really enjoyed Ridgewood where we play um, every now and again. You know, that's sort of your typical northeast, uh, you know, old school architecture. Um, that was really good for tournament golf because it it it, it had the, the combination of what, you know, professionals love it to be. Um, they, they, they don't want bad shots rewarded. <laughs> they, they they want it to be a, a sliding scale of the better shot you hit um the more reward you get and the further offline you get the more you get punished and i'm not saying ridgewood is a course like that but if you struck the ball well or it was the rewards were just so high the way the course was set up so if you were, if you were playing well it's a course that you felt like really reflected how you were playing well i mean and professional golf's weird in that like you'd play tournaments where the end of the week someone would be 20 under and you'd be like i could play the best i've ever played and i'm not getting more than four or five under around here i don't i I don't see it i can't see how you can shoot 20 under around why lie it's like i think i shot two under there once and i felt like i played perfect i'm like there's no i can't average five a day around here in hawaii in other courses you'll play it's like man i did not i really struggled with this and you're in the top 10 it's just like and everyone's talking about how hard the golf course is and how unnerving this shot was and you're completely comfortable. So I think a lot of the time the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So um, have I got to five? That's five. That's, that's five. That's five, yeah. I mean, if you have one more, we'll take one more. If not, I've got, I've got a question for you. Go, question. Shoot. In, in, terms of, in terms of difficult golf courses, did you feel like you played better on difficult courses or birdie fest? Um, I played better on golf courses that required uh, good striking because that's what my strength was. Um, like difficult and I, I think good striking, like they, they don't necessarily line up because you can't be perfect, right? So if the punishment is like a US Open where it doesn't matter how well you play, you're going to miss two or three fairways. Well, if those two or three fairways a, a day or four fairways a, a day you know, the US Open is more about how, how good you are at 100 yards, not how good you are from hitting a, a two-iron or a drive and stuff like that. Um, but sometimes those birdie fests, they're the things that get you going. They're the things that turn your year around. 
because you get out there and it's just like, oh, yeah, shot five under today. You know, you might not have played that well. You shoot three or four under and you you finish the week 15 under um, and you might have finished 30th. And you, But you're not thinking, well, I'm a terrible golfer. It's like, man, I, you know, not that far away. I'm playing well. But if you're playing courses that just beat you down all the time, um, you know, I, I played decent at Marion and had a horrific finish. I think I had two or three doubles in the last three holes to finish 20th. Um, but, you know, I finished, I don't know how many over I was, maybe 12 over. I think I think I was six. I think Justin Rose was three over and he won. And I had a putt to go back to six over on like the 13th. And then just, you know, it all went pear-shaped after that. So even after finishing 20th in the US Open, it's not like the next week you're like, wow, I'm playing so well. <laughs> It's like it's impossible. Perspective, my friend. Perspective. Yeah, exactly. It's all perspective. So I, I was, um, you know, we all love the courses we play well on. That's just a fact. I mean, I love Riviera, and I don't think I ever played well there. But generally, like the courses you played well on are the ones you, you know, had strong affinity yeah. for. You know, I, I'm, I'm minded to mention, um, and forgive me if I'm off base with this. this um, I, I'm 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 likely to stick you in a, a bucket with Zach Blair, Jeff Ogilvy, and yourself. I think you're a sort of cerebral thinkers about golf. I mean, am I correct in in assuming that you're not the norm, or maybe I'm being given given your 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 pro brethren uh, a bad uh, a bad rap? Um, I mean, I think there's a surprising a lot more. Or there's a lot more depth to what you you in these guys and what you would just read about. You know, I've had plenty of long-winded conversations with all sorts of types about stuff that you know has got nothing to do with golf that would probably surprise you. Um, but it's very difficult to be elite at something or to be world best at something. Um, it takes a hell of a lot of um, you, you you can't spend your time thinking about other things. You know, it's got to be a singular focus. So, and for a lot of guys, you know, they're not necessarily going to, you know, reveal much about themselves, especially this day and age, because they feel like, you know, if they say the wrong thing or if they get misinterpreted or if they they come out with a poorly thought opinion or something they've just been thinking about on another topic, that it's just too dangerous to say the wrong thing or, or to or to make an ill-informed opinion because, you know, they probably feel like, you know, the damage they can do to, you know, their reputation or getting, you know, whatever it is. Um, that, so you can see why guys are a little bit guarded, probably don't let a lot of the reporters in. So there's not much to, there's not much to report. There's not much to know. And I mean, guys do show a little bit more of themselves on their Instagram and, you know, their social media. But even then, that's very, um, I would say, it's very curated for a particular audience and to get a particular result. So, um, yeah, maybe, you know, we think about things a little bit more, a little bit differently. Um, I think that's just our personalities, but I, I wouldn't just, you know, tar everyone with a brush necessarily. There's some, there's some characters out there that, you know, you've never heard of. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, I'm probably doing Patrick Harrington and Rory McIlroy and Injustice as well, so I better, better, better drop them into the equation as well. Come here. I was just wondering, uh, a, a, a question I asked plates, 
um, with regard to recommending two books. Okay, so the first one should be on golf course architecture. If you can refrain from mentioning a book by Dr. Mackenzie, Jeff Shackleford, or Tom Doak, that would be useful. And the second one should be one on golf. Again, please, it cannot be written by Kurt Sampson. Uh, okay. Um, well, my favorite, I've, probably my two favorite golf architecture books um, are The Links and um, The Architectural Side of Golf. Um, so that's Robert Hunter, and, and The Architectural Simpson, Side of Golf is Simpson Weathered. Yes, correct, correct. Um, I find myself going back to the architectural side of golf a lot when I'm thinking about because um, it gets into the, sort of what the process was. It gets into a lot of like how you actually you know how you grow grass, how you build a golf course, all this sort of stuff. But I really love all the the Simpson templates as well, like all these drawings and all that sort of stuff. I think are really cool. Um, as far as like golf books, I mean, I don't read a lot of golf books. I don't find them. Um, it's not my thing, <laughs> to, to be honest. I read, okay, that's fine. Like, uh, like, I would say books that really interest, like things that inter- interest me is from a writing perspective would be, um, I, was, I really enjoy or influenced by like the way Christopher Hitchens writes a lot. He has like a really interesting prose. He weaves in like pop culture a bit and just, you can just never get tired of, of, of how he would, um, how he would construct a paragraph about something is really interesting. Um, and I'm probably going back to what I said earlier. One book that, um, not golf related, but influenced the way I, you know, see the world a lot was um, Fooled by Randomness, which is a book by um, Nassim Taleb, who uh, sort of came to um, prominence during the global financial crisis because he'd written a book. Um, called the black swan which was about black swan events and that's like things we all you know things we can't predict but have huge consequences but then afterwards we act as if we should have easily predicted them but you can't predict a black swan event and that was the that's sort of the premise of it but it's a bit like a a bit like the invasion of the the ukraine maybe well no that was probably easily predictable but like google like why google was so large you know or (laughs) <laughs> but but people would go back but world war ii he, he describes as a black swan event as like you know not many people were writing about the invasion at the time like they didn't see it as a possibility but then we we go back now through history and we look at it and like well it was obvious but, but obviously at the time no one was writing about it so it wasn't obvious um but anyway his book that was sort of an expanded chat so he was on because he made so much money out of the global financial crisis because he basically said it was a was predictable and it wasn't a black swan event um and he was you know on all the you know made his hedge fund um he was a quant for a hedge fund somewhere you know billions of dollars when everyone else was um was getting trashed but that was an expansion of a chapter in his previous book which was called fooled by randomness and that's basically just talks about how we mistake randomness for our abilities and like basically and it, it talks about that and that influenced me a lot in in the way i think about a lot of things you know just how where we we turn a blind eye to just how lucky or, or or the things that have happened in our life we attribute to us being smarter or us being better or us being more talented when really that was just there's a lot more luck involved than what we want to admit miss misattribution at the end of the day i suppose i i noticed you've got a, a seven mile beach hat on your head there 
Now, for us that have unnaturally large heads, very good. For us that have unnaturally large heads, and and fear that the hat you have on would look like a pimple on on an elephant, essentially. Where I to make a purchase? Obviously, any chance you could investigate the stretchy version of the imperial caps for those of us with ultra large bounces. Sure. So I, I I did a really a limited run. The shop that we um that I put out was just a bit of fun, really. I was I was trying to test the logo. And uh, I wanted to test, and to get a decent test run, I needed to order a certain number of hats. So I ordered a bunch of hats. I'm like, well, I may as well give people the opportunity to buy them. Um, it wasn't like it was some, you know, money-making venture or anything like that. It was just a bit of fun. But when I actually get around to, uh, you know, serious merchandising, um, I'll definitely look at that. But that was, um, that's a Stuart Appleby. He can't wear a hat. They don't make him big enough for him. That's why he always wears a visor. Yeah. I feel his pain. I really do feel his pain. Look, before we... So we'll get you a visor. Yeah, yeah, sound. I, I see, I, I, unfortunately, in the sun, Matt, my, uh, I do a mean case of lobster. I'm, uh, I'm a, a pasty patty, I'm afraid, so... Well, there is there is such a thing as sunscreen. I know you guys haven't heard well, that over there. But yeah, yeah, factor 50, yeah, yeah. Can, can, can conquer cancer and all that. Yeah, I'm well well aware of of, of the uh, the vagaries of not doing that. Uh, slip, slip, Exactly, slap. exactly. Listen, before we close out, you might let the listeners know how they can follow progress of Seven Mile Beach, how they can reach out to you if they want to make advanced bookings for 23. Uh, that's 2023, obviously. Or get some of the Seven Mile Beach swag that's now, now available <laughs> in the shop. Yeah, so the everything's we have it on the website. So um, seven with a seven, not the so sevenmilegolf.com.au is like the website where I'll post updates. Um, and then seven mile golf, again with the seven and not not the spelled seven. Um, I'm on Twitter, even though I I absolutely loathe Twitter and uh, refuse to go on. Um, I do post the odd picture, the odd update, or there's an automatic update. And then um, same thing on Instagram. I sort of post some pictures on Instagram. It's um, seven mile golf there. Again, just the seven. Um, and yeah, if you want to email us, you can email us at info at uh, sevenmilegolf.com.au and you can clog up my mailbox and I'll, I'll try and respond. But at the moment, no um, no forward bookings. Um, but as soon as I can, I'll, uh, I'll update everyone on that. But we're hoping for, um, yeah, the end of uh, 2023 at this point. I mean, they're moving pretty quickly. They've got 13, 14, 1, 2, and 3 sort of all all roughed in. Um, and irrigation's just about to go in in the next sort of few weeks. So it'll be off to the races. Very exciting. Brilliant. Matt Goggin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Many thanks for your time. Whenever you're in Ireland next, as I said, I'd love to catch up in person and have, have a slap over here somewhere. No worries. That was great. Great talking to you, Shane. Appreciate it. Appreciate, Go easy, mate. Appreciate the time of uh, highlighting Seven Mile Beach. We're all very excited. Thank you. It was great to chat to Matt. I hope that your appetite has been sufficiently whetted in terms of making you visit, visit the Seven Mile Beach one day. We look forward to seeing it progress open at some stage next year. Just a little bit of housekeeping before we finish off. Please feel free to check us out on find us at firmandfast.golf from a twitter perspective you can find us at at firmandfastgolf and on the instagrams you can find us at firmandfastgolfpodcast until the next time happy golfing